from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. willing tomorrow I'll send out I'll, I'll get my blog post written out written out for you and Perry will get that to you probably Wednesday I think is when it normally comes out and it'll have a kind of an itinerary of the things that we're doing just so you can not worry that your pastor's not going over there for a vacation um, you know I know you're going to the Philippines right you know um, so a uh, lot a lot of work to be done two things I would ask you to pray for in particular um, one of them is there are 19 men that will be going through what's called an oral theology exam. So basically what that means is they sit in front of a panel of, there's two panels. Uh, one has three Americans. Uh, the other one will have uh, two Australians. Well, uh, one who's Welsh and the other one's Australian. And then another one on panels. And we will be doing oral examinations, theological oral examinations. We ask a question, they respond back. And there's 19 men that are going to go through that process. So we'd appreciate your prayers for those guys. Uh, you can imagine answering oral theological examinations in your own language with somebody that you know really well, that you're looking eyeball to eyeball with, how intimidating that could be. Well, imagine having to do that through a translator um, with guys that you, you've only watched on video screen that are leaders of a denomination that can get intimidating. <laughs> And so we're going to go with T-shirts and shorts on, make these guys feel welcome, uh, and have a great time and just enjoy those guys. But please pray for them. Uh, their oral examinations will begin on Monday, and they will run next week, next week, all the way through the following week. So be praying for those guys. Also, I'd appreciate your prayers. Wednesday, I have to go in and get a COVID test because I, I have to test negative to be able to go. Uh, the Philippines will not allow. There's a lot. They have a lot more rules than we have here. I know that mean, I know you guys are shocked by that because you think America's on lockdown. Believe me, it's not. And there's a lot more rules over there. And, uh, just for the sake of the gospel, man, we've got to do a few things. And so I want to ask you to be praying about that, uh, Wednesday, uh, sometime in the afternoon. I got to take a test and it's got to be negative or else I can't go. Now, the reason that's a big deal is I'm leading the trip. So I've got, you know, six internationals landing in Manila on Friday night. We're all getting together with a group of pastors. Leadership meeting on Saturday, preaching on Sunday. I'm, I'm preaching on Sunday, worship conference on Sunday afternoon, another leadership meeting, oral exams begin, and all that's been logistically done by me. And I'm not, if I'm not there, that could be really hard. So just please, I'm just, I'm, I'm nervous about it. So I'd appreciate your prayers. Uh, I'm nervous about it because, you know, I feel great, but who cares? You know, rub that thing on a banana, it turns out positive, right? I don't want to, I'm not, I just don't want to do that. You know, I don't want to do this, all right? So, but just bear with me, all right? Okay. Regardless where you stand, you know, sorry. <clears throat> all right. Okay. All right. Jonah. All right. So today, if you're new with us, we've been in a series uh, called Prophets in Exile, where we are studying one of the minor prophets every Sunday. Uh, Bruce Wells, what a fantastic job he did last week with Obadiah. Um, what a gift. Amen to that. I know. What a gift. And really grateful. So today we're going to study probably the most famous minor prophet was Jonah. Uh, the book of Jonah is unique because it is, it is way different than every other prophetic book you're going to read. 
The book of Jonah, normally prophetic books have a thus saith the Lord type of feel, right? You know, God said to go say this, and they pronounce in this word, and the book of Jonah is not like that at all. The book of Jonah focuses on the disobedience of Jonah, God's prophet, to God's command, and Jonah's attitude toward God's mercy on people that Jonah didn't like. Right? So this morning, here's the big idea, just so you can kind of prepare yourselves, pull out your pillows, put them on your toes. This is the big idea of the book of Jonah, which is in our notes. It says, this is the big idea. God is merciful and gracious to people from every nation, even our enemies. His mercy is wider than we could imagine. Let's put it another way. God is merciful and gracious to people from every nation, even people we don't like. His mercy is wider than we can imagine. That's what we're going to see in the book of Jonah. Jonah is seen as a kid's story. Um, we kind of have a tendency to think that it's about Jonah and this fish. In reality, the fish oh, is only mentioned in two verses. So the story of Jonah is completely different. Now the challenge for the preacher, just so you can understand, and this will help you know when you're going to churches if you're hearing biblical preaching or not, the challenge of the preacher is to take what is written as if it was written to original readers, interpret what that would have been, re-speak that interpretation to the hearers that you're with, and then apply some things 2,000 years later that that might have happened, right? So you, you might wonder when you come to our church, why do we spend so much time on the historical context? It's because the readers would have received this a certain way. We have to look at how they would have received this book. And I guarantee you, this wasn't them receiving it as a child story. And you're going to see why. All right, so let's stand together. We're going to read parts of the book of Jonah. If you can, stand with us, great. If you can't, that's fine as well. It, it, we are going to read some lengthy sections, so just bear with me. Um, so we're going to start in Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. <clears throat> now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners said, We're afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought that we may not perish. Now go down to chapter to verse 9 in chapter 1. And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. And the men who were exceedingly afraid said to him, What is this you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Let's skip down to verse 15. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. 
Now go down to chapter 2. We're going to look at two verses, verse 1 and verse 10. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, and the Lord spoke to Jonah, and it vomited Jonah out on dry land. Now chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose, went to, the, went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through, through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now go to chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Let's pray. Lord, your word is true. It is inspired and it's God-breathed. And we ask you this morning to help us see the message of the book of Jonah and apply it to our hearts. You are the great shepherd of your people. We ask you to re-speak your word to your people in such a way that the original intent would be would land upon our hearts, but also, Lord, that the particular applicables in our 21st century world would come alive. And would you point us to the greater Jonah, Jesus himself, Lord, you know my weakness today. Help the preacher. Help the hearer. For the glory of God and the good of your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, the, the story of Jonah is relatively straightforward. If you are, if you've been in the church for very long, you've, you've heard the story, you've, you've read the story. If you haven't been in the church for very long, let me just give you a brief overview of the book of Jonah. God told Jonah, a prophet, to go to Nineveh and speak out against their evil. Jonah decided, on the other hand, he'd go the opposite direction and head to the other part of the globe. While on this ship going the other direction, a storm overtook the ship, so much so that the experienced sailors freaked out. Now, the text says mariners. Don't let that make you think that's the Seattle mariners who just accomplished something miraculous in the last 20 years by getting a playoff berth. That's not these guys. Okay, This is, this is people who are experienced. They had no idea what's happening. They freaked out. They begin to pray to their gods because they're pluralistic, multifaceted in their approach to spirituality, and they toss cargo overboard, but nothing seemed to help. All the while, Jonah is asleep in the bottom of the boat, inside it, and the captain goes down, wakes him up, commands him to call out to his God, because he thinks, maybe this God, that your God, will help us. Well, after things don't calm down, they draw straws to find out whose fault is this. And basically, Jonah draws a short straw. And they realize this is his fault, and they put him under questioning. They put the lamp on his head, and they begin to challenge him about, where were you the night of? Basically saying, why is this happening to us because of you? 
And Jonah's answer is fascinating. He says he's a Hebrew from Israel, a follower, a disciple of the God of the land and the sea, meaning I'm such a follower of God that I'm running the other direction away from God. Does that make sense to anybody? Right? The sailors realize that Jonah is running from God and they panic. Jonah tells them, hey, don't worry. If you just toss me overboard, things will calm down because this whole thing's happened because of me. The sailors more unselfish than Jonah, say, no, we're not going to do that. They decide to start rowing to save themselves. The storm gets worse. Last resort, they put their rows down. The ship is breaking up. They grab Jonah and they throw him out into the ocean. And the seas calm down. At that moment, the sailors worship God and made sacrifices. Now, before you think to yourself, this was a saving moment in the life of these sailors, just understand what's happening. They are pluralistic in their view of spirituality. To them, the God of Jonah just saved them. Let's add him to the pantheon of the gods that we worship, and let's do the same sacrifices that the Hebrews did. That's all they're doing. This isn't salvation has come to the sailors, this is just them adding another god to their pantheon of gods. At this moment, Jonah is now drowning. And as he's drowning, a fish, appointed by the Lord, a large one, swallows him. And Jonah is in the belly of the beast for three days and three nights. And finally, finally, on the brink of death, Jonah prays in desperation that God might save him. At that moment, the fish vomits Jonah up onto dry land And God commands Jonah now to go into Nineveh, preach the message I gave you, and this time Jonah obeys. Kind of feel forced to, wouldn't you? I mean, you know, yes, sir, right? Jonah gets to the heart of the city. He preaches a message. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Not quite your gospel, grace-filled, merciful message that you might hear. Here on a Sunday, and the people of the city repent. They are stirred. And the king of Nineveh repents and calls the entire city to repent and turn away from their evil. And they beg that God might not destroy them. And because of their repentance, God relents of the disaster that he promised to bring upon these people. And this mightily ticked off Jonah. Because Jonah knew something. That if the people repented, God would have mercy on them. And so Jonah... Angry, goes outside the city to see if God would destroy the city of Nineveh. He literally sits outside the city waiting for God to bring fire and brimstone, and God doesn't. Instead, God decides to bring a plant to sit over the top of Jonah to shade his head from the heat of the day. And Jonah's really happy about this plant because God gave him this really nice plant. So nice, he falls asleep. The next morning he wakes up, God puts a worm in the plant that kills the plant, and Jonah gets ticked off all over again. And the book ends in a fascinating way. It ends with a question. And the question basically is this, Jonah, do you think it's odd that you have mercy and sadness over a plant that you didn't create or water or sustain, but yet you're mad at God who created the Ninevites, has sustained the Ninevites, and God has mercy on them and their possessions. Do you find that odd, Jonah? And that's how the book ends. Now, the book ends there in a sense for the reader, those of us who have read it, to be left with this interrogation question from God about how myopic and selfish we can become while the nations are burning and going to hell. 
But to understand the story of Jonah further, we need to understand what was, what was going on in Jonah's time. Right? How would this have landed on the original hearers of this story? Jonah was from Israel, the northern kingdom. He was living underneath King Jeroboam II, who was a wicked military leader. He was very likely a contemporary of Amos, a, a prophet that we've already studied, who has already said Israel was in a bad spot. They were immoral, they were idolatrous, they were evil, they had forgotten their God, and they were unwilling to listen to any of the prophets that God had sent them. God tried everything to get his people to turn to them. He made them succeed, and they forgot their God. He made them have pestilence and take everything away, and they still forgot their God. God tried everything to get their attention, and his people still would not listen. Through the prophets of God, God warned them that their disobedience would send an army from the north, the Assyrians, to come and exile them from their land, and everything would be wiped out. So to make this story really come to life, you have to understand Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. The sworn enemies of the people of God. That's the story of Jonah, and that's where we are in history. So the story of Jonah is the story of Israel. It's how God sees the nations of this world. It's how God interacts with his people when they disobey and what God is doing with his people, right? So it's not just a story, if you will, nice little kid story about a big whale and a dude lands in the belly of the whale and we spend all the time with the belly of the whale. No, it's actually a story saying something to the people of Israel about how God sees them and how God sees the nations of the world. So what I want to do today is do something odd. I'm going to ask four questions. They're going to be in chronological order of the book. And we're just going to ask four questions. We're going to then try to answer the four questions. And then we're going to look and see how we can apply what we've learned from those four questions. All right. So the first question you'll see in your notes is, why did Jonah disobey God in chapter 1? The assumption is that Jonah went to Tarshish because he was afraid. He was scared of the Ninevites. Um, that would make some sense, in a sense, because one commentator said that, that Nineveh, in the early church, was considered the devil himself. So picture Las Vegas on steroids, and that's basically what you have. You have an immoral, unrighteous city that is blaring at you about their ungodliness, yet the other side of this is, is the Assyrians were not just ungodly, they were aimed at doing destruction to any nation that might cross them. So you can imagine a word from God comes to a prophet and says, go to Nineveh, the great city, preach against it, and you just kind of say, hey, hey, not so much. And you go the other direction, right? I mean, fear would take you over, and what could happen if I landed in that particular city? However, rather than fear... There seems to be something else that is driving Jonah that we must pay attention to. Now, the beauty of preaching a narrative, which this is, is you look at the story as a whole and you learn things from it. In a letter, you go verse by verse and you read a following of a letter that tells you things. A story says, this is what happened. And toward the end, you get a glimpse of something that might have gone on even further. And we see that in the end of the book of Jonah. In Jonah chapter 2... We're given a very, or Jonah chapter 4, we're giving a very odd yet revealing answer about Jonah's disobedience. After Nineveh repented, 
And God relented from sending destruction. Notice what Jonah said. Oh Lord, is this not why I said when I was yet, what I said when I was not, when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew, listen to this clearly, that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Meaning it is evident from Jonah's answer that Jonah wasn't afraid. Jonah instead knew something about God's character. He knew that God's character was merciful towards sinners. And when they turned, he was slow to anger and he would relent from the disaster that he had promised on the Ninevites if they turned to God. Now Jonah knew that. And what's intriguing about that is Jonah used God's character against the Ninevites because when you tie it into the history, what do you notice? Knowing that the Assyrians were enemies of Israel and therefore they were enemies of Jonah, this would tell us that Jonah's understanding of God's mercy towards sinners and his understanding that God would have mercy on his enemies, the Assyrians, means Jonah went the other direction because Jonah did not want the mercy of God being delivered to the Assyrians. Now let that settle in for a moment. See, in 2020, we ran into all these racial riots and everything that you could begin to imagine became racist. Can we be honest here? Jonah is showing signs of being a prejudiced racist. He's showing signs here of being a man who does not want God's mercy to come to his enemies. Rather than see the Assyrians as made in the image of God, who need God's mercy, Jonah did all he could to keep God's mercy from getting to the Assyrians. So he went the other direction. Jonah seems to be battling the old age-old sins of prejudice, racism, ethnic pride, I'm going to use this phrase, ungodly nationalistic pride. But before we go too far and we bang on Jonah really hard and we go, man, how dare that guy? What a racist, what a, what a mean guy. How, how bad this guy is. Just consider how challenging and ethically challenging Jonah's call really is. Jonah knew because of what he'd heard from Amos and other prophets that God would send the Assyrians into, into, into Israel to exile his people out of that country. Because of their disobedience at some time in the future. So, if God says he's going to kill and destroy the Assyrians, what do you think? This is God's way to get rid of our arch enemies. But if God relented from his destruction on the Assyrians, because they repented and turned to God they would be able to fulfill the prophecies that the prophet said would happen, being the army from the north who would come in and destroy your people. So here's a question for you. If you were Jonah and God gave you a word to go to your sworn enemies who you knew God had said would come and destroy you, and if they repented, they would surely fulfill that prophecy, wouldn't you get on the next ship to Tarshish? Now, I know in talking to many of you in 2020 that you would. See, the story of Jonah is not so cut and dried, is it? 
It's a story about how we feel about ourselves and where our loyalties lie. That's what it's about. Another aspect of this, and you'll see it throughout the text, is that Jonah's disobedience represents Israel's disobedience to God. See, God had called Israel to be something. He called them to be a blessing to all nations. We'll see this next year in our study of the book of Genesis in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. You're going to see it all throughout the text that they were given commandments from God, promises by God in the covenants of God, not to keep them to themselves, but to bless the world and the people around them through them and by them. Yet rather than being a blessing to the nations, The people of Israel chose to disobey God and disregard his word. And some have said, rightfully so, that Jonah represents Israel while the Assyrians represent all the other nations of the world. Now, when you put all that stuff together in Jonah's disobedience, I think there's something we can really learn here and something that we got to let just settle deep into our hearts. There are to be... No other loyalties in our lives higher than our loyalty to God. And we all agree. We say, yeah, that's exactly right. Until you're called to go to your sworn enemy to proclaim the gospel to them, knowing if they repent, it may mean destruction for your land. Do you see how ethically challenging this is? Do you see what this does in your soul? Right? God alone is to reign supreme in the hearts of his people. Jonah seems to be more committed to his national heritage, his ethnicity, and his race than he is to the God of the universe and his mission to bless all nations through the message that he is going to bring. Jonah's loyalties were divided, and therefore he disobeyed. See, I am totally convinced this is why God brings disasters on us to help us find where is your heart divided. And we all felt this, didn't we, in 2020? Do I obey this? Do I not obey this? Do I do that? Do I not do that? Where, where does, where can the government say, where can I, and we're in this battleground all the time, testing loyalties constantly. And where your loyalties are divided, it will be really easy for you to justify your disobedience. That's what Jonah did. So we could call Jonah a racist, we could call him a nationalist, but whatever you call him, it doesn't matter. Jonah is definitely a man whose loyalties were divided. I just wonder where that lands on us. I mean, just... Just let this land on your heart. Let the shepherd, let your shepherd, the king, not not this shepherd, your king, the, the pastor of your soul... Jesus himself, let him just dig deep into this issue, into your heart. So every one of us know these moments where God is basically asking a question. Are you more loyal to me or are you loyal to your own agenda? Do I reign supreme in your hearts? Or does everything else reign supreme in your heart? Where does national heritage, race, ethnic background, political affiliation, or opinions on social issues interfere with our loyalties to Christ? And listen, I don't care what race you come from, what political ideal you come from. Let me tell you something. Everywhere you turn, the world is divided on these issues. We, as God's people, must be loyal to this king only. 
That, that's a difference of the church. We can have all sorts of political ideals running through our system, but we are united on one thing. We have one king and his name is Jesus. See, Israel fell in love with blessings of God and forgot their allegiance to God. They became myopic and self-centered, even idolatrous. And Jonah is a picture of their disobedience. So listen, where, where do you see that disobedience rising up in your soul? I can tell you where I, I could get, I can't, I can't even, I don't have the time to tell you where I've seen it in my soul. That's question number one. Second question. Why was Jonah in the fish and why did the fish spit him out? Right? I mean, we're told in verses 117, chapter 1, verse 17, that this is what happened. He gets tossed off the ship. Great fish appointed by the Lord swallows him. And there's two possibilities why he's in the ship. And I I actually agree with both of them. I don't think it's either or. One is judgment or discipline or punishment for Jonah's disobedience. God would not let Jonah off the hook. Everybody see what I just did there? It's a fish. It's a fish. Dad joke for those of you. I don't do dad jokes. I just make them up on the fly. You know what I'm saying? All right. Uh, okay. Jonah was exiled into the belly of the fish to some degree how the people of Israel will be exiled into the belly of the beast of the Assyrians, later the Babylonians and the Persians. But another reason is God's mercy and deliverance. I mean, just think about this. Jonah didn't drown. God saved him. And not only did God save him and rescued him, he spit him out on the ground so Jonah would go to the Ninevites and pronounce the mercy of God to a whole other group of people. That's the mercy of God. It's, it's God's mercy and deliverance, right? So you've got judgment on the one hand and you've got mercy on the other hand. And that leads us to why this fish probably spit him out. God was after Jonah. God was after the Assyrians. And in the stomach of that fish, in desperation, as we're going to see in a few moments, afraid of dying, Jonah cried out to God. If you will, the discipline of the Lord turned Jonah's heart. This is why God disciplines his people, is to turn our hearts. That's why he's going to discipline in the years of Israel's history, going to bring Assyria in, take them out to discipline them for the purpose of turning them back to the Lord. Now it's interesting when you read Jonah chapter two, which is Jonah's prayer, he never mentions his sin against God and he never mentions his prejudice against the Assyrians. Instead, he finishes his prayer like this, which tells you a little bit about where Jonah's at. When my life was fainting away, Jonah is on the brink of death. I mean, he is at the very last of it all. He says, when my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you. Into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Talking about his people Israel. We are a bunch of idolaters. We've forsaken the steadfast love of God. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vow, what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. In other words, Jonah comes to the end of himself. He sees how big God is because Jonah's about to breathe his last. He sees the greatness of God, and in the belly of that fish is exactly what God ordered for Jonah's life. We can see it in chapter 2, verse 10, that the fish vomited him at that moment onto dry land. Now, there's a couple things from Jonah being in the fish and spit out of the fish that we must learn. And the first one is this. If God is after us 
and we're disobeying God, and we're in discipline of the Lord, then true life, real life, is found in repentance and obedience to God. See, if you're an original reader, you're reading the story of Jonah, and you're recognizing, wait, when Jonah repented, he came out of the fish. Meaning, we need to turn as well. Jonah was dead for all intents and purposes inside that fish, but he turned to God, and God resurrected him to new life. That's precisely what happens to us, friends, when we turn to Christ. We can be running straight to the pit of hell, and the God of the universe will put his clamps on us. And when we repent and trust Christ, we are raised to live in a brand new way. True life is found in repentance and obedience to God. Don't miss that. But also don't miss something else. Something that Jesus said about Jonah. We can't miss this. See, if you're reading your Bibles, many times you probably look at the Old Testament and you think, I don't even know what this means. This is so veiled. Well, what the Old Testament veils, the New Testament reveals. Right? Jesus himself said something very fascinating. When Jesus was in Israel, he was rebuking the rebellious leaders because they still did not believe in God and follow their Messiah. He's rebuking their religious leaders who were seeking for a miraculous sign. And notice what Jesus said to them in Matthew chapter 12, that the only sign that will be given to them is the sign of Jonah. Which means, just as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the fish, so shall Jesus be in the heart of the earth. Jonah going into the fish was a moment of abandonment and judgment from God. Jonah coming out of the fish was a moment of acceptance from God. Fascinatingly enough, if you understand their judicial system during this time, one of the ways they judged innocence or guilt was they accused a man. And they said, look, you're guilty of whatever the crime. They threw him into a river. If he survived, he was innocent. If he didn't survive, he's guilty. Right? Jonah goes into the ocean guilty. And what happens? He gets swallowed. He repents. He gets spit out on the other side, declared innocent. Is that not a picture of your Savior taking on your sin, going into the judicial river, covered in your sin, and spit out of the resurrection, declared to be the Son of God? So don't miss the picture. Jonah going in the fish and out of the fish is a story of Jesus' death and resurrection. And it's a sign for those of us who are in Christ that we need to put our trust in Christ. So listen, if you're looking for another sign, there will be none given. It has been given. It's Jesus dying and rising again. That's the sign. Don't miss that sign. Don't, don't walk away from that sign. Don't read the story of Jonah and the fish and go, what a cute little story. No, don't miss the point. This is about true life being found in the resurrected Christ, and it's about true life being found in a life of repentance and obedience to God. See, don't miss that. Third question. Why did God have mercy on the Ninevites? <clears throat> You'll notice that in chapter 3, verse 4, that Jonah's message is pretty short. Matter of fact, one commentator said this is the shortest prophetic denunciation on record. It is the equivalent of five Hebrew words. In English, it's yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. 
Notice, no message of their sin, no message of turn to God, no gospel. I mean, there's, this isn't a whimsical, let me give a story in that baby and just zing it out here. No, it's none of that. Five words and it lands. Look how quickly it lands. Verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and they had sorrow over their sin. Verse 6, the king heard of it and did the same and called the entire nation to repent, including, listen, including their livestock. Imagine God ransacking your heart so deeply that you run home today and you declare to your cows, repent! You talk about salvation coming to your home, right? And they beg God to relent. Please don't send disaster. And according to verse 10, God does relent. Now this shows us a few things. First, imagine again being, being an original reader and asking, what does the book of Jonah contrast? It contrasts Israel's disobedience with the Assyrians' willingness to repent. I mean, think about that. If, if Jonah represented Israel, Assyria represented the nations of the world, then God is making a, a monumental statement to the people of Israel. You can imagine what this would have said to them. God sent an Israeli prophet to a foreign land because we wouldn't listen And the foreigners, our enemies, listened to his word, but God's own people, called by his name, refused to listen. You can imagine the impact that would have. Jesus, later on, when Jesus comes on the scene, he basically tells the Pharisees this. He says, the people of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment and condemn you because they believed in Jonah's message, and you're not believing in the one who is greater than Jonah. See, don't, don't miss that. See, don't, don't miss what is happening. It's a contrast between, between this. Don't, don't miss what God is doing. But this also shows us something else. It shows us God's heart toward people of every nation, race, ethnic group, tribe, and tongue. Don't miss this. He is merciful. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love to put their, to any who put their trust in him. Anybody, anyone who turns to the living God will be saved from the judgment to come. That's God's heart toward all nations, all peoples. God is after nations repenting so deeply that even their livestock repent. I mean, think about that. That's Romans 8 saying the creation is groaning until the revealing of the sons of God. God is after a complete transformation, meaning God is doing something so remarkably big that he wants people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to bow their knee to him. And he wants cows and donkeys and fish to bow their knees to God. He wants it all. Don't miss this. And friends, what this means, if that's true, it means... Even those we don't like very well. See, the story of Jonah going to Nineveh and the Ninevites repenting basically says something fascinating that God, God's mercy, is far more reaching, it's deeper, it's higher, it's wider than we could ever imagine. He is far more merciful than we give him credit for, especially with us who love to stand in judgment over others to tell them that they don't have it nearly as good as us, and therefore they must be in sin against God. 
But God can and he will save people who are hard to love, who are jerks. And I want to be honest with you. I am grateful that the God of the universe chose to save an arrogant jerk like Dave York to transform his heart with the gospel. He chooses to save people that disagree with us politically, people who are murderers, rapists, jihadists, criminals. His mercy is greater than our minds can conceive. And if you don't think that to be true, then let Charles Spurgeon just simply declare to you how great God's power is when he wrote these words. Jesus is mighty to save, and the best proof of which lies in the fact that he has saved you. I wonder if you believe that when you're reading the news and you think about how decadent the world is. I wonder if you think about the grace of God landing upon your life and how the rest of the world needs to hear the message of the gospel, but you're too busy criticizing the rest of the world. God had mercy on the Ninevites because, because he is merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love toward any and all who turn to him. And this reveals God's heart for all people in all nations. Don't miss that. Last question. Why was Jonah angry? Chapter 4, if you read it, is absolutely bizarre. You would think to yourself, Jonah's been in the belly of the fish. He's been there. He prayed, got spit out, raised to brand new life. And he sees revival break out in a decadent city. Imagine, just for a moment, imagine that God called you to go to Portland while it's burning and you're going to go up there and declare the gospel to the mayor of the city and the mayor goes, we got to call a citywide fast. Everybody's got to repent. Imagine what you'd be doing. You'd be like, whoa. You would be over the top, over the moon. That's not Jonah. Instead, Jonah's mad. He's angry with God. He's angry at the Ninevites, and he wants to die. Old ways are hard to die, aren't they? They're hard to die. Chapter 4 finds Jonah outside the city, pouting and waiting for God to destroy the city. I can almost imagine the scene where Jonah runs out of the city. God's already telling him he's going to relent, and Jonah's out there twiddling his thumbs, just waiting. When is fire and brimstone like Sodom and Gomorrah going to come? Any day now, God? Any day. And all of a sudden he gets hot and this plant comes over and he just goes, oh, this plant's so nice. Wow, I really like this plant. When are they going to burn? I mean, I can just see him just see. And then he falls asleep and the next morning he wakes up and this, this worm starts eating away at this plant and it kills it. And he gets mad again. Why? Why? Why does Jonah get mad? What? And that's where, that's where we, that's where we find, we don't hear anything about Jonah repenting and going, Lord, I'm such an idiot. Thanks for saving me. Nope. That's where the book ends. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. I think there's three questions in the text that give us an indication to it. After telling the Lord that he was upset that God forgave the Ninevites, God asked Jonah in verse four a very interesting question. Do you do well to be angry? You know what the translation of this is? Do you have a right as a human to be angry with God? And then in verse 9, after his plant was destroyed from giving him shade and he's mad again, 
God said the same thing. Do you do well to be angry? Again, do you have a right as a human to be angry with God? And then chapter 11, after God, after God has confronted him, basically God asked him the same question. If God, can God have mercy on the blinded Ninevites? Or another way to say that is, another way to translate it is, isn't it right for God to have mercy on the Ninevites? See, God is using all three questions to expose something in Jonah's heart. He's using it to expose how myopic and how selfish Jonah has become. He showed Jonah that he completely missed the point of God's mission on the earth. It's not about one nation. It's about all nations. And it doesn't matter if that nation happens to be your enemy. God will have mercy on whom he has mercy. And that includes those we don't like very well. So what do we learn from Jonah being angry and God's confrontation of Jonah? Well, I think there's three things you can learn. One is, do you see how fickle Jonah is? This amazes me. Jonah repents in the belly of the fish, goes to preach. They repent. They respond to his message, and Jonah is mad. He goes from one minute in repentance to the next minute angry with God. I mean, have you ever been that way? You ever been that way? I warn preachers every Sunday that I talk to, guys that I love on a little bit, they, I ask them, what did you preach on on Sunday? And they tell me, and I'll text them a message and say, listen, tomorrow morning you're going to wake up and you're going to be angry that things didn't go the way you thought because Jonah is more alive than us and we'll ever want to know. I call it post-ministerial syndrome or PMS for those of you who knows what that stands for, right? That's what I call it, right? Because the day after you give it all, the next day you are a target, You ever go like this? You come to church, have a great worship experience, and you jump in the car, and your kid has left rotten milk in the car. Lose your mind moment, right? I mean, how fickle we are. It's a revelation that we need the day-by-day grace and moment-by-moment grace and relationship with the living God. Don't miss that. But I also want you to notice how quickly, how quickly, Jonah forgot God's mercy toward him. You think Jonah would smell the fish guts on his body. There's some indication that when Jonah came out of that acidic stomach, no hair, eyelids kind of gone, white skin, completely paled out because the pigmentation had been taken from his body, comes scraggling in with seaweed hanging off of him. You could think in that moment he would look around, kind of pick at his ears and get the goo, fish goo out of his ears, and he would just say, you know what, I was in the fish and God rescued me by his mercy. You'd think that would happen. And it would also say to him, if God could rescue me, I was running the other side of the world, God saved me by a fish. He's going to rescue these Ninevites and have compassion on them. But he doesn't. Do you ever forget how patient God is with you? Now, if you're a parent, you do every day of your life. I've told you a thousand times not to do that. And the Lord just kind of stirs the heart to say, yeah, we're, we're on 10,000 times with you about this. Do, do, you, do you ever forget how merciful God has been toward you? Do you see 
how you need day-by-day reminders of Christ and His work in your life. Do you see why you need to preach the gospel to yourself every day and in every way to remind yourself that you are the worst sinner in the room because your sin put Jesus on the cross? Do you see why we need church to remind us of this glorious gospel? Because we're prone to forget. But listen, the biggest lesson that I think we've got to draw out of the book of Jonah, and I, and I hope this really lands on us well. We're, we're growing in this. We're getting better at it. 2020 exposed some things about us that, to be honest with you, were a bit shocking to me as the pastor and in my own heart as well. And here's the thought. God's mission is bigger and more important than us. We don't have a right to be angry because God is the life giver, the sustainer, the provider of all people for all time. He is the omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful God who is working all things out to accomplish things for the glory of His great name and the honor of His great Son and the advancement of His gospel and the good of His people. And it doesn't matter. He will use COVID. He'll use the belly of a fish. He will use political change. He will use military takeovers. He will do it all for those purposes, right? That's bigger than us. See, he will have mercy on whom he'll have mercy, and he will judge whom he will judge. Our job, our job as God's people is to get in line with God, represent God well with the few words he's given us to proclaim, and trust God with the results, even if it doesn't look like the way we thought it should look. God's goal, so you can get this right, is that even your cattle would have their eyes open to the power of the gospel. He is after a transformative, vast, global, universal work. So listen, that means, that means our petty prejudices, our preferences, our, our racism will not stand in the way of God and should never stand in the way of God because His mission is way bigger than our selfish perspectives. Well, my friends, I, I really hope 2020 taught you that. I really hope the last several years have taught you that. God is at work in ways that we could never imagine. So as we close, I want to ask you a few questions. We're going to communion next. These are good ones to evaluate your heart. Where do you see Jonah and Israel's myopic prejudice alive in you? You can probably name the individual. Why would I ever take the gospel to them? Where have you allowed foreign loyalties to usurp your loyalty to God? Listen, it could be a sport. It could be a friendship. It could be a relationship. It could be a job. It could be a national allegiance. It could be a political affiliation. Where do you see disruptive loyalties in your loyalty to Christ, battling with you all the time. And I hope you see this more than anything. I hope you see your need for the risen Christ, the greater Jonah. See, if you're not a child of God, the greater Jonah is a sign for you to say, I I need Christ. The only way to true life is through repentance and life in Christ. And I'd encourage you, turn to Jesus, believe in Christ. If you're a child of God, I can just say this to you as well. The greater Jonah has come for guys and gals like us. To remind us 
that true life is found in repentance and obedience to God. That we need to be reminded daily of His mercy toward us. Because listen, may God, may God in His kindness eradicate Jonah's disobedience, Israel's disobedience, and anger from our hearts and give us really a heart for people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, and may Revelation 7, where everybody's gathered around the throne, be the day that we look at and we go, that's the day I'm living for, not this petty little thing I'm doing right now. May God do that work in us. Let's pray. Now as we're praying here, It's a good moment, getting ready for communion, to just confess and acknowledge any sin that the Lord has shown you in your heart today. It can be prejudice, racism. It can be be your own pride. It can be uh, seeing an enemy and not, not wanting the mercy of God to come to them. It can be a, a false loyalty. And this morning, your king, your shepherd, he is pursuing you. Just confess your sin to him. He already knows. Father, we, we come to this moment where we acknowledge our need for you. We, we confess our ungodly national pride. We confess our ungodly allegiances that take us away from serving the living God. We confess our pride. Lord, we we confess our racism, our prejudice, no matter what side of the aisle or what color of our skin, it, it, it sinfully is alive in all of us. We want to live for a greater day. We want to live for the day when myriads of myriads Every nation, tribe, and tongue is worshiping the king. So we just, we just confess our, our struggle with our loyalties. We confess where we see Jonah and Israel's anger and disobedience alive in us. We thank you that you bring us to communion where here you remind us of what Jesus has done for us. His body was broken for us. His blood was spilled out for us so that we might be forgiven by God and made right with you and have a relationship with you. So we thank you. Bless our time as we take communion together for the glory of your great name and the good of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.